So you have to, with all the different diseases, educate yourself in the disease cycle of the different diseases that you deal with. So if you're somebody that has an orchard or whether you keep an orchard for your, you know, as a hobby or you're actually farming, uh, apple scab is something that you really have to deal with. So you saw in this video, for one, they start off in the spring. And they show you a spore that's on a leaf that has died from the previous year that's on the ground. So there's your initial inoculum. Now, once the rain comes and that takes off, that puts spores into the air. Once those spores get in the air, of course, they start to attack new leaves. And then those new leaves continue to produce more spores, which continue going and going until the whole orchard has been contaminated, assuming the, you know, the host is susceptible to it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, at the end of the season, develops more paratheciums on the leaves, the leaves fall off and go to the ground, and it sits there until next year. So by understanding this disease cycle, which is actually, this one's actually late blight. I should have put that one in here. This is late blight, and this is a, a disease cycle for late blight. Now, okay, late blight is a very different disease than apple scab, but the important thing is if when you understand the life cycle of the diseases, you can understand how you can come in and, and uh, interrupt those life cycles, right? So remember, in the beginning I told you that we were to become intelligent in disease, its cause, its prevention, and its cure. So uh, understanding a life cycle is understanding diseases and what they're looking for. So if you can understand the cause, if you ascertain the cause, as Job 26 says, then you can somehow come in and interrupt it. And this is, yes, that's apple scab right there. So there's your paratheciums there. This is referred to, this big cycle right here is the cycle that the video first talked about. And then it started talking about the conidiophores, which are right here. This is the summer cycle, asexual summer cycle. The nice thing about the asexual summer cycle is that they're exactly genetic clones. What does, what, what's important about that versus a sexual productive cycle? In an asexual productive cycle, it's exact DNA. There are clones. In other words, there's no more new information. So if you have a genetic resistance to apple scab, so you've got a variety that has it or whatever, uh, you don't have to worry about uh, a new pathogen, a new race coming out with somehow has developed uh, the capacity to overcome whatever genetic resistance your variety has. Uh, when you have sexual reproduction, that's meiosis, that's new information, you know, that's uh, creating new species or, or new varieties, I'm sorry, of the species. So if I were to take everybody in this room as an example, <clears throat> and everybody comes from various different backgrounds and colors and races and nations and tongues and people, etc., uh, as we're supposed to be as Adventists, and we just decide we're going to breed within ourselves. And we, you keep breeding within ourselves and you, you go down seven, eight, nine, ten generations, you, you end up developing of particular types. In other words, what that, that population that's going to exist is going to be a mixture of everybody's genetics in this room. So what everybody is, th those genes are all going to mix up. And what you end up with is completely different people. Now, let's just say for an example, we're going to do this for this experiment. I'm going to kill everybody in this room with a green sweater. So this young man and everybody else is going to die. Now the rest of us are going to breed. And then two or three of them are born with green sweaters, so we kill those. And then every generation we keep wiping it out. After a while, nobody's going to wear green sweaters anymore. Right? After a day. After a day. Yeah, well, we're a little more intelligent. But the, plant, the disease is not that intelligent. So what happens is that you're, you're selecting. That's what's referred to as selecting uh, a, a particular variety. So we decide that, you know, when, when, that's why they call it eugenics. Or, you know, when we go and we try to wipe out a race like, you know, Adolf Hitler did or, 
or Stalin or uh, over in Uganda, they tried it as well. When you decide you're going you know, you're to take this group of living organisms and you're going to exterminate them and you only want this other group to, to survive, that's essentially genetics. You're playing God. You're saying, I want this to be alive, I want that to die. So when it comes to this uh, life cycles and diseases and, develop, and overcoming the genetic resistance that many uh, plants have been bred to have, especially with stem rust and um, bananas are another one. These are see, wheat, <clears throat> bananas, citrus. What's another one? Oh, I know there's another one. I can't think of the other ones. But anyhow, those three are three uh, world, very important world food crops uh, that have an uncertain future. In other words, they were bred to have genetic resistance. Stem, uh, wheat was bred to have genetic resistance against stem rust. Well, it's overcome that genetic resistance through uh, Uganda 99, which is a new stem rust that came out in Uganda in 1999. That's why it's called uh, Uganda 99. And it's spread throughout Africa, and it's expected to spread throughout Europe and Asia and the Americas, ultimately affecting everybody's ability to grow uh, wheat. So, and we have no genetics to overcome that. Um, so Cavendish, the Mish Michael banana, was the first banana that came out in the 20th century, very popular. It got hit by Fusarium oxysporum, a form of Fusarium wilt. Uh, they came out with genetic resistance. They came out with the Mitch, Mitch Connell variety, which is the banana that we all eat now, that we all have come to except the yellow one that you find everywhere. Well, now we have tropical race four. It only has genetic resistance against one and two, and partial genetic resistance against three. Uh, so now four has come out, and it came out in Indonesia. We have no bananas to replace it. We have no genetic information. Every single one of those banana trees is an identical clone everywhere in the globe. They have the same exact DNA. So it only takes one pathogen that can overcome that genetic resistance, to wipe out the, in, all of the planet's bananas. So it, and it's already here, it's in Indonesia, and I think it just recently was identified in Africa, and we're expecting it to end up in Latin America, at which point right now, as rich Americans, with respect to the rest of the world, um, we can still buy bananas, because whatever's grown comes to the US, but in other parts of the world, uh, bananas are not as readily available anymore, and that's gonna continue to be a problem. With citrus, we gotta deal with citrus canker. We have no genetic resistance against citrus canker. So um, we've lost a lot of orchards in Florida. We're losing orchards in Texas, and it's expected to hit in California. We lost a lot of orchards in Mexico. Tons of orchards in Mexico of citrus have gone uh, due to citrus canker, which initially came out through the Mexican key line. So we have no genetic resistance against that. Again, we're told we are to be intelligent in disease, its cause, its prevention, and its cure. And there's more to overcoming disease than just simply genetics. So if 50% of this room is susceptible to coming down with cancer because you happen to have the diseases that are going to make you sick with cancer, I would hope that you would understand that your genetics only loads the gun. Your lifestyle choices is what pulls the trigger. So the genetics is what you're putting in the ground the seeds you put in the ground, the crops you seek to plant, how you decide to manage that soil, amend that soil, work with those crops, the environment, the moisture, the nutrition, et cetera, et cetera, that's what's gonna pull the trigger for disease. That's what I hope to teach you today. So I'll go back. There's a lot of very interesting things in the world of agriculture. I'm not gonna talk about them today, but 
All right, so I talked about uh, overwintering. How is the new infection cycle initiated? We said that that was from the leaf litter, right? So, you know, if you want to uh, minimize, if you have apple orchards and you want to minimize apple scab, one of the most important things you need to do is mow down that leaf litter, either haul it out of there or mow it down and till it down and get it off the surface of the soil. That gets rid of those spores. When spring comes, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, are spores formed by sexual or asexual processes? So predominantly they're formed through uh, asexual reproduction, which is your polycyclic summer cycle. But you do end up with some sexual reproduction, new genetics uh, towards the end of the season. So again, you should really, really wipe out those leaves in the summertime. I'm sorry, in the fall. Which spore type is most important economically? It's definitely gonna be the Canidia 4. That is the reproductive cycle in the summertime that reproduces rapidly and completely inoculates the entire crop. Now, going into late blight, I wanna go into actually uh, talking about funguses. Um, a large portion of what I have to say is fungus because the majority of the diseases that you deal with as a farmer, uh, as anybody producing a crop, is going to be fungal related. Um, excluding all your pests, um, insects, etc., it's going to be almost entirely fungus. The fungus is, is wide. I mean, there are so many fungal diseases out there. However, Omycete is not tec technically considered a fungus because it's not actually under the same tree. Now, I, I don't believe that the world evolved. I, I don't know what you believe, but I don't believe that the world evolved. Um, I believe that we're doing the opposite thing of what science thinks we're doing. Science thinks we're creating the superhuman race. I believe that we are degenerating and we're going down into the pits. Um, so I very much opposite to what science teaches. Uh, however, what they have decided to do is make what they call phylogenetic trees and trees of life. And they try to tell you, you know, well, it started off with this little protein or whatever, and then boom, it went off to everything that exists. But, um, so unfortunately, um, not just we as Adventists, but we as Christians have not really embraced the science world and the atheists and uh, other folks that don't really respect God have come in and they have overtaken the science and they have decided how they're going to call things, how they're going to name things, how they're going to classify things. So when we start to talk about science, unfortunately, all this evolutionary nonsense comes into it. It's very, very difficult to teach science from a godly perspective simply because they set everything up under a theory of evolution. So what that does is that it simply tells us that omycetes are not in the same uh, clade. I don't know if you understand that word. In other words, they, they believe that omycetes evolved from a different branch and that the other true fungus evolved from a different branch. In other words, they're, they're not related is what they're saying. Um, what that means is that omycetes are different in the sense that they, uh, well, anyway, they evolved from, uh, well, I don't believe that they evolved. However, they have different, walls are, are made out of uh, chitin instead of, of anyway, the cell walls are made out of different organisms, uh, different structures that require different uh, metabolites to break down. So when you're looking to fight an omycete fungus, uh, first off, omycetes are, are also known as water molds. And the reason why they're called water molds is because they're, they look just like tadpoles, but microscopic. And essentially they have flagellas, they swim around. The way that they get around is by moving this tail and moving through the moisture and getting to where they want to be, where they believe the environment is ideal 
for uh, germinating and sporing. So they fall under a completely different category, predominantly water molds. So when we're dealing with omycete funguses, you're almost certain that your problem is too much water. No matter what it is, too much water. That could be something like uh, gummy stem blight. Uh, Pythium is another omycete. Uh, what's the other one? Rhizoc. Uh, white molds are also omycete. Downy mildew is an omycete. So if you're getting hit with a mildew on your leaf, is it downy mildew or is it powdery mildew? Well, downy mildew is an omycete. Powdery mildew is an ascomycete. So they're different funguses. They require different, life, different environments in order to thrive. Therefore, you know that with downy mildew, you can, if that's what you really have, then your, your leaves are too wet. Whether it's because it's been very rainy and there's nothing you can do about it, or you're using sprinkler irrigation, as many people do uh, in the West Coast and Western part of the United States. If you're using sprinkler irrigation and you're sprinkling too much water, your first sign that you're putting too much water is your omycete funguses take off. So that could be late blight, which is an omycete. That could be downy mildew, which is also an omycete fungus. Um, so you know right then and there, water needs to be cut back. So if you see that, then you can make those connections. Or if there's too much rain, if you're in other parts of the country, or especially just west of here where the rain goes from 40 inches of annual rainfall all the way up to 80 inches of annual rainfall, then you're really gonna be dealing with these funguses. So understanding what these funguses, these diseases are classified is gonna help you to understand the, the environment that is necessary for them to thrive. So terms associated with disease cycles, getting back to some of these uh, Terminology, there's a primary inoculum, which we talked about was the very first one that came out of the leaf litter and, and hit the leaf. Um, for fungal and omycete pathogens, if an asexual spore is involved in the disease cycle, it typically serves as the uh, ascospore, which gives rise to uh, oospores or zoospores, which is the primary inoculum. The secondary inoculum, this is gonna be that, again, that summer cycle is the infectious propagules that were produced in the, inf in the infection that took place during the same growing season. So your secondary inoculum, if, if, if you have that, not all funguses do that, but if you have that cycle, uh, it's definitely gonna be your summer cycle. Uh, this type of inoculum is nearly always asexual, which means that you don't have new genetics. It's, it's a clone. Uh, and the infectious propagules are relatively short-lived. They don't, they don't last very long. So for uh, powdery mildew, for example, it has a, it's a polycyclic disease, um, and that leaf, that, that mold that you see on the leaf is releasing spores. So if you're coming in and doing proper deleafing and getting rid of these things and hauling it away from the growing area and throwing it in a compost pile some distance away, you're removing that inoculum, constantly removing new inoculum if you're training that plant to keep growing. Uh, because it's an ascomycete, it also requires high humidity and low water. It doesn't like water. It's not a water mold. So if you have a lot of wet leaves, you're not likely to develop ascomycete fungus. You're gonna develop those fungal diseases when you have high humidity. You can get high humidity simply by not deleafing and having these microclimates in areas where too, much leaves, too many leaves are there and when the crop tries to transpire, it makes that area too humid. So that's another thing that sets it off. These are all things that are not associated with uh, again, all these things that I'm mentioning are environmental issues. They are the environment, changes in the environment, and not changes in the host. For changes in the host, you want to go uh, for the best advice on what you can do to change the host, you want to actually look at uh, soil nutrition. 
and feeding the crop right. I'm not going to talk about that in this class. I'm going to focus on the environment uh, and uh, what you can change in the environment. What do I have here? Soil-borne diseases are commonly monocyclic, of course, so Fusarium wilt. Uh, most of your foliar diseases are polycyclic. Soil diseases are monocyclic. The timing of individual infections can still vary drastically, and they're mostly environmentally related, as well as uh, plant maintenance. So if you're getting in there and you're doing things, uh, doing the plant maintenance, which, which is uh, pruning and deleafing, et cetera, and not planting too close. Uh, let's see, polycyclic diseases is a disease where uh, uh, whereon to many cycles of infection are, are initiated by a secondary inoculum. I think I covered that. that maybe I went backwards. Uh, many foliar diseases, powdery mildews, rust of grasses, and late blight are polycyclic. Uh, terms that are addressed in the time required. Okay, so one, okay, so uh, incubation period, which is the amount of time that, you know, uh, you, you get these spores, they land on your crop, right? So it is, it's impossible. Uh, in the greenhouse industry, where I work, they, a lot of the different farms are absolutely dogmatic about sanitation. It's ridiculous. I mean, they will not even let you walk into their greenhouse without putting on this big, like, almost like a biohazard suit. They don't even want you breathing on their plants because they don't want an inoculum on there. <laughs> and I'll show you how foolish that is when I look at it later because most of these greenhouse industries grow hydroponically. So their nutrition is out of whack just because I said that one word. I mean, there's a lot of things those crops don't have just by saying hydroponics. Um, but anyhow, they know how to do it, make a lot of money doing it, so that's what they do. So the incubation period is the amount of time that, you know, the, the inoculum comes in and it's simply just asleep. It's just laying in your leaf, your stems, your soil, whatever. It's not doing anything, it's just there. The latent period is similar to the incubation period. It is a time from infection to a new spore production. So this is really important because when you start talking about something like late blight, it could be as quick as just a few days. So that means you get your first spore on your plant if your host is susceptible, whatever that plant is, in less than a week, it's already putting out spores. Boom, just throwing them out, throwing them out everywhere. And I know uh, 10 or 15 years ago, right here in the Pacific Northwest, I think it was something like 30 or 40% of the potato crop was wiped out. That's huge for the Pacific Northwest. All along the gorge uh, because of late blight and it just took off and was gone. They couldn't stop it. You know, real late blight, that's why I say, if you really think it's late blight, and it happens to be late blight, then yeah, your only thing you could probably do is just, you know, till it all down and hang up your boots, because there's not much you can do if it really takes off like that. Uh, and a lot of farmers have had to do that. But not, you know, it's not always the case that that's what you need to do. More, more times than not, that's not the case. Uh, then there's quiescent infections, which is inactive, symptomless, microscopic infections. Um, in other words, these are infections that come in, they take off, they're very quiet, you don't see it, uh, you don't know anything about it. Uh, a lot of this stuff exists. Um, this this is, happens more often than not when you have a very healthy host and it can put up its system of defenses and keep itself from actually being attacked. So the pathogen is there, but it's not really doing much of anything. And you don't even know it's there because the plants look pretty healthy for the most part. Um, so if we put these terms into a disease cycle, and this is just a generic disease cycle description here, you have the incubation period here, which is the time of infection till the disease actually develops. And then you have the uh, latent period, which is from infection down to reproduction. And then of course you have your asexual reproductive stage, and then you have your, which is your secondary cycle. And then you have your primary cycles here, which is the survival cycle, the overwintering cycle. Um, and 
uh, these are, I think I covered all the terms there. All right. So then another microbial life stage that is important is um, understanding whether pathogens are, are fall under symbiosis or, or saprophytism, which is mutualism, or communalism, which is symbiosis. And then you have parasitism. Um, and then, of course, what those pathogens do. And the reason why this is oftentimes important is because if you're dealing with a pathogen that, like Botrytis, which is straight necro necrotrophic, it only really likes dead plant tissues. It likes to live in the world of the dead. It only wants to fight things that are dead or consume and feed on things that are dead. Dead plant tissues, uh, you know, fruit or simple sugars, it doesn't really have a lot in its toolbox and its genetic code to really be throwing out, to be breaking down all these different uh, um, uh, Immune, plant immune system defenses that can be brought out. Uh, well, if you're dealing with something that is straight symbiosis, like for example, mycorrhizae, so I talked about uh, actomycete funguses, basidiomycete funguses, and then you got omycete, but then you have globular mycetes, and most of all your micro, uh, my beneficial mycorrhizae falls under the globular mycete, which is a whole other uh, area of fungus, but those are usually all mutualistic. Um, but most of your parasitic or most of your disease-based funguses fall either between saprophytes or some sort of where, well, actually, I think the next slide does a better job at explaining that. Hold on, let me get over. Uh, so life stages of plant pathogens, you have the parasitism and the saprophytism. So a parasite only <coughs> is something that feeds on the plant and is dependent upon the host being alive. So its goal is not to actually kill the host. So these are usually your slower, your slower diseases. And then your parasite, but saprophic occasionally, which is referred to as facultative saprophyte, uh, these are terms down here at the bottom. Really, what you, get out of, you need to get out of this is this right here. Because when you start looking up the diseases that you're going to have to deal with every day, they're going to tell you it's an obligate parasite. Usually not. They're going to tell you, because if it was, you probably wouldn't even be bothering to look it up. You're going to be looking up the facultative saprophyte and the obligate saprophyte, and occasionally you get this one. But these two are overwhelming the overwhelming larger majority of the diseases we deal with are either facultative sapro saprophyte or obligate saprophyte, which means they live only in the world of the dead, or they like to be in the living tissue, but they can be in the dead tissue too, which means that they will infect the crop, kill the host or portions of it, and then feed on the dead tissue. That's their objective. So just, I guess that's all you really need to get out of that slide. Uh, okay, so now I'm going to talk about the Omycota, which is common names or water molds or omycetes. They are uh, hyphae are coincentric. In other words, when you, uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you get yourself a microscope, you start looking at the stuff under the microscope and you want to look at the actual hyphae. If you can manage to get that hyphae, what you will see, it's almost like a straight garden hose. They don't have walls. They're, they're very simple organisms. Um, their cell walls are made out of cellulose, so the enzymes and the different uh, not only the enzymes that the plant puts up to defend itself, but also the different sprays you, you go after. If you look at the active ingredient, sometimes they have the capacity to break down cellulose. If it doesn't have the capacity to break down cellulose, it's worthless spraying that, whatever that is, on that pathogen that you're fighting. So if they tell you you have late blight, you spray something that is absolutely useless on cellulose, then it's useless to use it on late blight, whether it's organic or conventional or whatever it is. If you're gonna turn to those sprays and they don't affect this, it's money down the drain. Uh, sexual reproduction, again, is O-spore. Asexual reproduction is the sporangia and the zoospores. Um, I guess you can see that in the life, and the, uh, uh, life cycle 
um, that I showed earlier. Important diseases called by, caused by ormycetes, of course, is pythium, damping off, pythium blight of turf, uh, phytophthora of the roots. Uh, this is all soil-borne. For the foliar pathogens, it's late blight of tomato and potato, uh, sudden oat deck, uh, death, and then uh, downy mildews. These are just some, but there's a lot more than that. Um, so here's some pictures of, you know, look at this field. That's, uh, that's pythium hitting this part right here. Here as well, these are some uh, raised beds. And what you see here is pythium, or uh, uh, damping off is what it's often called, is a more common name. So another statement I'll make is that when it comes to, to uh, plant pathology, um, this was originally started, uh, the discipline that originally started in the 1860s, 1870s, I forget exactly when, after the uh, uh, Irish potato famine happened. Um, and since then, they've come up with so many names for these things that is ridiculous. <laughs> so they're trying to actually uh, simplify the names, but there are so many names. There's common names, and there's scientific names, and then there's old scientific names. So trying to remember the scientific names is sometimes pointless. Uh, most growers know the common name. Uh, so here's some more uh, damping off caused by pythium. Uh, these are definitely opportunistic. Another thing I wanted to actually share is you see this stuff like that? I've dealt with some of this before. And just a note, I go out and I test this stuff, and oftentimes, absolutely absent of calcium. Absolutely absent. I mean, if you get these spots like that, you need to be testing these individual spots, and you'll find most of the time your chemistry is totally out of whack. Uh, I'm just throwing that in. This is oftentimes found because you're dealing with seedlings. You're in some simple soil, some simple media. All you're doing is dumping water on it with maybe some nutrition, and you end up with pythium in your seedlings. Uh, again, I always recommend for your, for your starting your sprouts or anything you're doing uh, and you don't want to deal with pythium, you, you need to learn how to uh, precharge your media. In other words, that is put the right nutrients into that media before you even plant. That avoids a lot of these types of diseases. This is late blight of potato. I think some of you are familiar with this, some of you don't know this. There's the spores there. The, uh, the sporangia, the asexual, uh, the asexual spores are the white part here. You see the necrosis, and I mean, this right here is just the general blight of the potato. It wipes them out fast. <clears throat> this is a downy mildew again. Uh, you have downy mildew of, uh, of uh, what is it? lettuce here, which is a very common one in lettuce. And again, lettuce is almost an overwhelming amount of the lettuce is grown in two different ways. Either it's grown hydroponically, uh, where they put a lot of calcium in the media, but I'm sorry, in the solution, uh, in synthetic forms, which oftentimes react with other minerals and don't actually go into the plant. Um, and then, of course, this is uh, downy mildew of grapes. Uh, the same omice. The same uh, they're actually different, slightly different fungus, but they're still omice. Uh, again, this is asexual structures. Uh, I don't think we really need to get into much of that there. Let's see. So this is what I was talking about with looking at the actual spores. If you look at the actual spores in omycetes, they actually have these little tails on them. And that's why they're referred to as water molds. And if, you're, if you have too much water, again, you're going to get these, these diseases. Uh, here's some more. This is the actual when they, the zoo spores that come out. Um, these are really nice images if you're really into the actual fungus itself. And when you send your samples in to disease clinics, they're looking for stuff like this. This is what they're looking for. And oftentimes, it's kind of over our heads. But what I really wanted you guys to understand is 
that this stuff can be usually identified down pretty closely to what it is. So you don't have to do a lot of guesswork. Try to eliminate your guesswork. Sporangiophores of downy mildew are slightly different. They kind of come up like this here, and you have little spores like this guy that are on these hyphae, and then they release out, and they can be spread out usually through water droplets uh, from overhead irrigation or excessive rain. Omicete questions. What is the basic life, si life cycle of an omicete pathogen? What do you guys think that is? This is actually more of an open question here. I'm wondering whether or not I did a testing myself. What's the basic life cycle, cycle of an omicete uh, uh, pathogen? Very water dependent, which is the primary inoculum, if it's mostly, especially if it's soil based. What about uh, foliar omicete? It's the secondary cycle. So you have your first inoculum, and then you have your primary inoculum, and then you have your secondary one. That's the one that mostly does, that does most of the damage. So if you got late, just a primary inoculum of late blight, it probably wouldn't bother you much. You'd see it and knock it out, it'd go away. But it, because of that secondary cycle, because it can reproduce so fast, that is what gives it that famous name, Phythophthora infestans, which means plant destroyer. That's exactly what that name means. So to have a name like that is, is pretty serious. Uh, how does the life strategy of the damping off pathogen Pythium differ from the downy mildew pathium, uh, uh, pathogen? The, the strategies are pretty, uh, are pretty simple. This pythium is an initial inoculant, highly dependent on high, on high moisture, but also I would say, um, I keep going back to calcium. I, I have to give calcium respect because the issue is with plant roots, they do not have uh, cuticles. In other words, they do not, like you guys saw in the video of the ascomycete, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of the uh, apple scab, Remember, it talked about how that hyphae came in and it dug in underneath the cuticles, the waxy cuticles. Well, the roots of every single plant out there does not have that waxy cuticle. So it doesn't have that protection. So when you start dealing with a lot of these pathogens, they're, really, they're real serious problems in tropical regions because of the high moisture content there and the, and the warmth. Uh, and those plants that have managed to survive there have very thick waxy cuticles that covers that entire leaf. But roots do not have that. What roots are dependent on is strong cell walls, strong bonds, and those strong bonds are formed through calcium and silica. And if we don't have enough, if you don't have, uh, I was in some of these biology textbooks, I didn't bring a biology textbook with me, but they'll tell you if your base saturation of calcium goes below 50%, your roots are done, they start to break down. So that's 50%. So you deal with some of these soils that are down in the 30s and the 40%, you have no hope. <laughs> so the only way that you can really protect it, the best way to protect yourself from pythium is one, get that calcium in there, build those strong bonds, grow healthy roots, and then you can come in and inoculate with trichoderma and prevent that. But really, if you're just using trichoderma, which is root shield of those, anybody that uses, does anybody know it? What root shield is? I got one person, two persons, great. Three persons, all right. So root shield is a product that's sold, uh, uh, the active ingredient is trichoderma. Trichoderma is supposed to actually cover your roots and prohibit pythium from developing on the root system. So great for uh, your starters, uh, anything you put in a tray. But however, it's expensive, right? When you start to mix it in your transplants and... Um, We've actually gone as much as, yeah, we've gone as much as two and a half pounds per acre. 
which is still not that much, but it adds up. Um, however, if you use trichoderma and your calcium's out of whack, it's only but marginally effective. It's not, it's not gonna, it's, it's not a cure-all. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is, you know, like I said, the guy's gonna show up. I remember when the guy showed up from uh, BioWorks. Oh, you gotta get trichoderma or a uh, root shield. And, and they got a new one now because it's a different species now, root shield plus. It's a, it's a different species than root shield, but they're both trichodermas. And, uh, and it makes us great promises, but I really didn't have to bother with it. And I've actually never had to deal with pythium at all until I, until just a few, what, about a month ago, I started to develop a little bit of fusarium. I said, what is going on? So I, did, I, I sent um, my media off to be tested in the house where I was, had some fusarium. I could not believe I came back with 36% uh, calcium, 36% potassium. The crop had pulled it out um, quickly. The tomatoes are very, very hungry. Tomatoes are some of the hungriest crops you'll ever grow. They'll pull it out of the ground in a hurry. So I went back and I got the calcium back up and, and, and I used trichoderma at root shield, but it just went away. It was done. Not wiped out a few plants and it was over. But my point is, it was inoculated with trichoderma at the beginning of the growing season. And I had plenty of calcium in there. I, I did not, I underestimated how much calcium the crop would remove. And it cost me dearly. It's really, really, I mean, how many of you are... At that level? I started to develop, oh, that's another thing. You see, you can get away with blossom end rot. I, I started to develop a little bit of blossom end rot, so I upped the overnight temperatures. It went away. So I, I upped my daily average just a hair, and, but then I upped my overnight temperatures from 58 degrees to about 62 degrees. I mean, this is in a greenhouse. You can control this. You can't do this outside. Uh, so for those of you guys that are outdoors, you're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you can't do all this stuff. You don't have all that fancy equipment. But anyway, I just adjusted the overnight temperatures a little bit and got rid of it, right? Uh, but then I still wasn't happy because I started to notice some uh, wilting in some of the crop. And when I started to look at the root stems, I noticed some blackening of the vascular system. So I ripped it out. I looked at it and I said, there's no way it can be. There's no way it can be a fusarium. I started the season at 86%. So I, I took it easy with my liming at first. I didn't put any calcium at first, but then it got ahead of me. I didn't realize that it pulled about the equivalent of 6,000 pounds of elemental calcium per the acre in a matter of 20 weeks. But in those 20 weeks, I produced 40,000 pounds of tomatoes in that one acre. So when I did the math, I realized, plus all the vegetative matter that I grew and threw out in the compost pile. So when you start adding all that up, you realize, wow, yeah, it pulled it out. But that was just a fine example of just changing that one, just changes in, the, you know, in those imbalances in the chemistry. And what is, I'll talk about it more tomorrow. I'm not going to get too much into it today. But um, I'll talk about the soil science portion tomorrow, and I'll talk some about some of these things. But the, the, the leachate was coming back just fine. But what I didn't realize is that, you know, again, uh, you've got to take soil samples. I mean, even sometimes folks that grow, you get hit with surprises like this. But... Uh, I'll share it with everybody, but essentially what, I'm, what I was doing is I'm, I'm always injecting potassium because potassium swells the fruit. And I inject magnesium into the fertigation system, and um, I've had some fertilizing issues, so I ended up with more nutrients in some area than others. Uh, I'm sorry, I had irrigation issues, so some nutrition went, more nutrition went to certain parts than other parts. And uh, I decided that I was going to uh, monitor it using, looking at my leachate. 
And it is a real good example, but I started to notice minor drops in the calcium that I didn't think were a real big issue. So then I took that nutrient. You know what? I want to pull something up that's really interesting for those of you. How many of you really do nutrition? I mean, I know Whitmar does. You can keep your hand down, but the rest of you guys. <laughs> How many of you guys are really into, you know, figuring out nutrient cycling, the amount of nutrients that are ripped out of, you know, the soil that your crop actually pulls out of the ground? I got one person there, not, not enough. I got a second person here, a third person there. Yeah. I'll give away some secrets here. Don't tell anybody I told you. I should go off the microphone here, but it's okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's saying that what some of these other folks are... Pre so I presented a lot on diseases and how they come in, and others have presented on, uh, you know, if you have these other things right, you don't have to worry about that. That's very true. And, be and because these guys have presented a lot on that, I wanted to touch on this because I wanted to come from a different angle, and I wanted you guys to see... I guess what a lot of the world and the scientific community and the agricultural community, you know, their approach. Um, I wanted also to educate you on what causes these diseases. In other words, I'm not trying to tell you how to solve the disease. Uh, I can, I'm going to talk about it tomorrow, but I'm trying to educate you on what causes the disease. What is that disease? What is powdery mildew? Why is it on my leaf? What is, you know, late blight? Why, do, why am I fighting this? What, what's sclerotinia? You know, what are leaf spots? What's, what's this bacteria, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to educate you guys on those things because I feel like uh, it just hasn't been done. And that's why we decided to do plant pathology and why I'm, I'm really focusing more not on how to solve these issues, but what are these issues? That's my main objective here. Uh, so the question was, if you have apple scab um, and the leaf goes on the ground, uh, you were saying to, I was saying to break it up and get it out of there in the fall. Well, it's January. It's pretty much winter right now. Is it still safe to go out and break those leaves? I would say yes. Um, go out. You don't have to rake them <clears throat> because there's a lot of, there are some nutrition, or there is quite a bit of nutrition in those leaves. However, if you're really fighting apple scab, you, so um, I'll, I'll say this. If you're really fighting apple scab, there's more that you need to worry about than just raking leaves. Okay. All right, let's start with that. Uh, secondly, if you're doing the right things to correct your production system, it would be ideal for you in the interim to get the leaves out of the way. All right, so, you know, I, 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 I don't uh, condone the use of sprays. I've got a whole bunch of sprays, way more than I need. I don't, I, don't, I don't really use them. Um, when I first got to five college farms, we sprayed at least twice a week. Now, sometimes I don't spray for two or three weeks. Um, I sprayed, yeah, organic sprays. Because the thing is, you can be certified organic, folks, but that doesn't really mean anything anymore. Um, everybody's jumped on the organic bandwagon. So, you know, we have this idea that if we go and we eat organic food, somehow it's going to be better for you. N not really. Um, all you're getting by eating organic food is that you know that you're not getting a lot of toxins. But you don't really know that you're getting all the nutrition you need. You understand? 
So you still need to correct your nutritional deficiencies. You might be able to detoxify yourself some by switching over to a fully organic diet, but you'll never guarantee that you're going to get all the nutrition because I can produce an agricultural product. I can grow tomatoes very well. I can grow tomatoes very well, and they can be very empty. And I can do it organically, right? I think a lot of people in here have probably accomplished that and hit serious, wonderful, beautiful yields and cut corners all over the place and send out these, these water bags, these red water bags, all day long. And that's what goes to the store, and that's what most people are eating. Canada is very good. The Netherlands are very good at growing red water bags that are called tomatoes. But to grow a real serious, you know, not tomatoes, but anything that has good quality nutrition that's going to give you the nutrition you need, unfortunately, there's only one way to really do it. You got to do it yourself. <laughs> like mama always said, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself, right? <laughs> so that's how food is. That's how farming is. You want to eat right? You got to just roll up your sleeves and grab the pitchfork and the shovel and get to work because you're not going to get it by going down to Whole Foods. And Oh, man, since Amazon bought Whole Foods. Who, does anybody deal with selling the Whole Foods besides me? Oh, gosh, not, there's one person back there that deals with You sell the Whole Foods? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, anyway, they, they're, a, they're, they're a headache to deal with. Uh, they are a serious headache to deal with. But everybody runs to Whole Foods to get their organic produce. And I look at their products, and I know what farms they come to. I've talked with some of the people that have grown in those farms. And I'm like, man, that's not a healthy product. I've bought some of that food, and I've ate it. And I'm like, man, this tastes terrible. <laughs> it's not a solution. Okay, so his question is, do you have to rake those leaves, or can you just burn them? Uh, or till them in the ground. Or till them into the ground. So... Okay, I was taught by Ken Johnson, who is the head of the plant pathology department, Dr. Ken Johnson, and the head of the plant pathology, pathology department at Oregon State University. And I approached him with this question, similar to what you said. Uh, can I just burn them? And I was baffled when he answered that question. Guess what he said to me? Well, this is a guy with a PhD that I'm quoting over down, at, just down the road here, a couple hours away. He told me that there's very little evidence to suggest that burning fungal spores will actually kill them. It just puts a whole bunch of fungal spores in a pile of ash. That's all it does. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's what he said. I'm just quoting him. And I've gone and I've researched. I know particularly with, um, oh, what was the one that was really in question? Oh, yes, filbert blight, which a lot of people have to deal with. Filberts are uh, uh, hazelnuts. Yeah. If you're from the Pacific Northwest, we call them filberts, right? Everybody else calls them hazelnuts. But anyhow, it was filbert blight that he was talking about, and they were talking about cutting the branches off and burning them, etc., to burn the inoculum, and he said, oh, that doesn't really work. We tried it, and it didn't work. Fire blight, um, I think with fire blight, you actually are more effective with that, because fire blight, if I remember correctly, is a bacteria. So yes, that would be effective. In fact, Ken Johnson has a, tr that's his main focus, is fire blight. If you go to OSU's extension website and you look at fire blight, that man has got, he studied fire blight for like 20-something years. And it's very interesting what he says because what he said, Whitmar, Ken Johnson said about fire blight is almost exactly what you would say. But I won't go any further. What do you do with what's under the apple tree? Fire, I'll just say it. Fire blight, I'm uh, sorry, uh, apple scab is a, apple scab is an ascomycete fungus. It's a foliar disease. So it would be most effective to put it into the soil where it ain't going to go anywhere. You understand? So it's not that you have killed it, but you have taken that inoculum and you have put it somewhere where it can't easily be blown up into your leaves. 
And it's also in an environment with a lot of other fungal and other bacterial, a lot of stuff going on in that soil that essentially it says, I, I don't want to, uh, this is not the right environment for me. I'm not going to really get out of here and go do something else. And if those uh, paratheciums actually grow out and push out those spores, they push it into the soil where they will die with time. So some people I know out in New England, uh, they practice root pruning. And they go out and they buy essentially rotor tillers and they till the top two or three inches. They don't go very deep, but they till the top two or three inches of the soil. Uh, others have begun practicing. Um, there's a number of different bulletins put out by the Pacific Northwest uh, Handbook. Uh, they grow. Essentially, they're putting pasture. Uh, they're looking for uh, different uh, um, legumes and other uh, grasses that they grow in the orchard. And they let the stuff actually grow up, and then they mow it down, and they grow it up, and it actually works to provide nitrogen and other minerals for the orchard. But while providing this lush grass, they come in and they mow, and they finally mow till there's not a leaf in sight. And I've done this just because I, I'm from, I grew up in Arizona. I never had to mow. I never had to rake leaves. I never had to water the lawn. I don't have to do any of that stuff because I grew up in the desert. So when I went out to the East Coast and all of a sudden I had to mow, I mean, I had to rake leaves. I was like, I don't want to do this. So I started mowing them. <laughs> and you can just mow them until they disappear. And what happens is they go into the, into the actual, uh, into the soil, into the grass. And they just decompose down there along with the grass. And they, they are not as likely, in fact, they're very, very unlikely to go airborne versus a leaf that's sitting on top of you know, the blades of grass that is on the surface where the water will hit it. It'll actually uh, get the paratheciums to shoot out the spores. And then those spores are up in the surface where they can go straight up into the air. The wind will blow them off to wherever they're going to go. So what you're doing is you're destroying all that leaf litter. And you're getting that spore that's sitting on a little table, if you will, like this table is off the ground. And these legs can be the blades of grass. And you're here on the surface. But you're getting that. And you're putting it down in here into a thick pad where the wind can't blow it away. So it, it, you're not really killing the spore. You're just putting it in a place where it's not likely to go airborne and re-inoculate your, your leaves. All fungal pathogens are related to calcium deficiency. Um, so the question is, uh, is powdery mildew related to calcium deficiency? Yes, it is. But I've also, had, uh, I've also had my calcium very, very nice and high. And I had almost no potassium. And I had very little phosphorus. And um, I can't remember what other pathogen I had. I mean, uh, nutritional imbalance I had, and, and, and powdery mildew just took off. So it's not always just uh, the fact that you don't have calcium. Um, it's the fact that you need proper mineral balance in order to properly feed the plant, in order to appropriately translocate nutrients and be able to produce uh, a healthy uh, plant tissues. So it's not just saying that the calcium level needs to be you know, through the roof or whatever. Uh, ca that calcium alone won't won't do that, but it's having everything appropriately balanced. And the reason why I was using that example is because I remember having literally like nothing for potassium. And when I tested it, it, didn't, it, it came up like seven pounds to the acre or something like that. And I, it was just, just like nothing. And anyway, that produced a sick plant that was susceptible to diseases. But I had plenty of calcium. So um, the question is about letting the land rest every year. We get that question almost every year. Every seventh year, I'm sorry, <laughs> not every year. Every seventh year, we get that question almost every year. Uh, the problem with, or uh, not the problem, but 
I do believe in that, and I see the benefits from that. And really, the benefit that I see there are the benefits associated with cover cropping. Um, however, some of the problems that I have with just saying, oh, I'm going to let my land rest for whatever amount of years and then go back and do it, is that it's not going to fix your uh, deficiencies and imbalances. It's kind of like saying, I mean, I, there's a lot of spiritual lessons we can learn from this. It's kind of like if we try to take a spiritual lesson, it would be a lot like saying, you know what, folks, uh, I'm going to take a break from the strip club and the bar. I'm not going to go for a year, and you know, then I'll go back to sinning. What's the sense in that? There's no sense in that. You know, you're still just as much a sinner. You're still, you, you still have all the same problems you had a year ago, right? Really, it's going to take a serious change. And that's what most every single soil on this planet needs, is a serious change. Because it's, it's just been so deteriorated and neglected and abused from years of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of erroneous farming practices. And then you have the flood that made it even, you know, made it not Eden, we'll just say that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.